Hi, I'm Andy Reid. Welcome to Honestly from HVCS, a podcast that brings you real honest talk about health-related issues that most people find difficulty talking about. We're here to encourage you to advocate for your own health and be your own champion. You know your body best and what your best life looks like. We give you the information you need to make informed choices. HVCS is a division of Cornerstone Family Healthcare. Coming up on this show. From Ewan's case onwards, trans people could no longer correct their birth certificates. And since in the UK we have no other form of civil identity, identification, apart from the birth certificate, that caused problems. It meant couldn't adopt, they lost all of their employment rights, and if they were unable to pay their car parking fines, they were sent to the wrong sex prison, where trans women, at least, were raped. With us on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by Zoe Playden, author of the book, The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes and the Unwritten History of the Trans Experience. Ewan Forbes was born in 1912 to a wealthy landowning family. Holders of the Baronessy in Aberdeenshire, Scotland, assigned female at birth, his true identity was never clear, even in childhood. And so, with the support of his mother, he was taken to European specialists and eventually treated with early preparations for synthetic testosterone. Raised as a boy at home, but socially obliged to present himself as a girl in public until his official coming out to the Queen, Ewan grew up became a doctor and got married. This required him to change sex on his birth certificate, which was possible at the time without much fuss. For decades, he lived a quiet life as a pillar of his local community. But in 1965, Ewan's older brother died unexpectedly, meaning that Ewan was set to inherit the baronessy. His title could only be inherited by the next oldest man in the family, and when his cousin John, spurred on by Ewan's sister, contested the inheritance, Ewan was forced to defend his male status in Scotland's Supreme Court, where he prevailed. This hugely important case would have changed the lives of trans people across the world if it hadn't been hidden. The hearing was conducted privately, the media was gagged, and those involved were sworn to secrecy. The case remained unknown until 1996 and now finally is described here along with Ewan's life story for the first time. Enlightening and galvanising, the hidden case of Ewan Forbes is a singular contribution to trans history and the ongoing struggle for trans rights. Zoe Playden is the Emeritus Professor of Medical Humanities at the University of London. She holds five degrees, including two doctorates, and for 21 years was professor and head of postgraduate media education for the NHS London and South East region. Zoe is a former co-chair of the Gay and Lesbian Association of Doctors and Dentists, and as a co-founder of the Parliamentary Forum on Gender Identity. She has worked in frontline LGBTI human rights for over 30 years with legal teams and as an advisor to government departments. This experience has fed into her first book for a general readership, The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes. Morning, Zoe. Good morning, Andy. Lovely to be with you. You too. 
I have to say, I've, I've read the book and I, I was thoroughly gripped by it. I thought it was uh, a very interesting read, a very, uh, very insightful for, for me as a kind of a layman in this subject. Uh, I, I was left with a, a very good grounding in, in, you know, transgender history and uh, with Ewan Forbes's story and the impact it had on recent history and going forward from, from his court case. Now, one thing I am worried about, what's the term that they use? Spoiler alert. I'm a wee bit worried about that. So if there's anything I say that you want to nip in the bud, please, please do, because I don't want to give the game away. But I'll start with, what's the book about? Okay, well, until the 1960s, trans people self-identified, had affirmative medical care, corrected their birth certificates, and lived in complete equality. That changed in 1968, and it was the case, the hidden case of Ewan Forbes that changed it. So, Ewan was um, an aristocratic Scots trans man. He had very early affirmative medical care when he was a child in the 1920s. He was a, a guinea pig for early testosterone treatment. And like everyone else then, he too corrected his birth certificate. He married, he lived completely happily until his older brother died in 1965. And the forebears of Craigavar baronetcy that came up for inheritance. But Ewan was legally the next male heir, but he had a cousin, John, who challenged him for the, uh, uh, the baronetcy on the grounds that Ewan wasn't a real man. And it turned into a bitter family quarrel. It went to court with a complicated and audacious defense. Ewan won the day, and then the case was removed from public view everyone involved in it sworn to secrecy, the press gagged, and no one knew that it had even existed. Because if a trans man could inherit a primogenitor baronetcy, I should just say, primogenitor is an archaic British law that says that some titles and estates can only be inherited by men, never by women. So it's always the oldest male heir. Now at that time, the crown, was subject to male primogenitor. Mm -hmm. The UK only has a queen because there were no eligible male heirs at the time. And Ewan inheriting, a trans man inheriting a primogenitor baronetcy caused a constitutional problem because if a trans person could inherit a primogenitor baronetcy, they could inherit the crown. And the purpose of constitutional law is to secure succession to the crown. That's its main focus. You need to know who the next monarch's going to be so that you've got political stability. Now, though, Ewan's precedent, heard in the highest civil court in Scotland, indicated that you might think you knew who the heir to the throne was, but they might have an older sibling, assigned female at birth, who turned out to be trans, and took the crown instead. Or perhaps the person that you thought was going to be heir, assigned male at birth, turned out to be trans and was no longer eligible for the crown. The solution uh, found was to set up another case, a uh, much more famous case of April Ashley, a trans woman, 
and to create not a medical or a scientific definition of being trans, but a purely legal uh, definition of being trans that removed trans people's civil liberties, socially excluded them and subjected them to a brutal medical regime. And that was that until 1996. So from 1970 to 1996, we have a lost generation of trans people who experienced the most extreme circumstances imaginable. What are we talking about when we, when we, when we say extreme? Because the stuff I was reading in, in your book, I, mean, I was quite shocked, to be honest. It is shocking, and it was actually really quite distressing to, um, to research. Uh, so, from Ewan's case onwards, trans people could no longer correct their birth certificates. And since in the UK we have no other form of civil identity, identification, apart from the birth certificate, that caused problems. It meant, for example, that they couldn't marry, couldn't adopt, they lost all of their employment rights, and if they were unable to pay their car parking fines, they were sent to the wrong sex prison, where trans women at least were raped, and yet it legally didn't count as rape. For that generation of trans people, the advice was, expect to lose your family, expect to lose your job, expect to lose your friends, expect never to see your children again. Leave town, move to a new city, of course change your name, never tell anyone anything about your past. Always censor anything that you're about to say to make sure that you're not giving away your past. Don't take a job that has uh, insurance or pension or anything that might require you to show your birth certificate um, and out yourself. Expect to be socially excluded. If you belong to a church, expect them to ban you. If you belong to a sports club, expect to be told to leave. If you belong to any social group, expect to be excluded. If you see trouble coming towards you down the street, then run or take the consequences. And know that if the consequences are the worst possible, the police won't investigate your death because you don't even count as a statistic. We don't know how many people uh, went through this because there were no statistics kept. Trans people were taken off the public health record. And, and in terms of people or uh, society at large, both in Britain and globally, these attitudes were encouraged, weren't they? You know, politically, medically, through the media, and kind of still are today. Yes, that's right. Two things happened. First of all, from the US, a new kind of pseudo-medicine arrived. Up to the 1960s, being trans had been medically classified as an intersex condition, a natural variation of sex development. But in the 1950s and early 1960s, a group of American psychiatrists decided to try to reclassify it as a mental illness. And in 1962, the first gender identity research clinic was opened at UCLA to cure, in inverted commas, uh, trans people, gay men and lesbians by using a range of methods, aversion therapy, ECT, uh, psychotherapy, uh, frontal lobotomy even. Um, and that toxic 
pseudo-medicine was uh, imported to the UK. That fueled the legal decision, the UK, so we've got bad medicine coming from the US. In the UK, we have this decision in the April Ashley case, this legal definition of trans people, which defines them as mentally ill and socially excludes them. And that legal decision, the case is called Corbett versus Corbett, became a super precedent. And it in its turn was cited in the US, in Canada, in Australia, in South Africa, in continental Europe. So Ewan's case effectively blighted the lives of trans people more or less worldwide. Now, one question that I put down here, I was going to broach this question later on in the, this interview, but you, you used the word blighted there. The question I have is, and, and this is, this is a, looking at it from a devil's advocate point of view, could Ewan have done more to help the transgender people's plight, if for lack of a better phrase? You know, I can completely understand why the case was private and that Ewan wanted to keep it private. But was that self-fulfilling, self-serving? It's very difficult, isn't it? We don't know how we're going to respond when we're faced with threat. What we do know is that Ewan's four days in court were astonishingly abusive and the level of questioning was, uh, I mean, just yes. unacceptable in any civilised society. Uh, and he seems to have been left with uh, what we'd now think of as uh, complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. Certainly he was a changed man when he uh, came out of court. Shunned society, was nervous, hypervigilant, uh, and so on. Angry. Probably angry too, but I think most of all, terrified. Because when the Corbett versus Corbett decision was made, and suddenly trans people couldn't correct their birth certificates anymore, all of the trans people who had corrected their birth certificates in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s, they were all terrified that government was going to come for them and take away their corrected birth certificates. And so they just disappeared. They just melted into the background. And, you know, the one or two people that I've spoken to from that period, they said, well, it was just awful. You didn't know, was he going to be us next? Whether Ewan could have done more, whether he could have made the case public, I don't know. I don't think it was quite in his hands. Certainly the judge uh, didn't put any uh, kind of restrictions on, um, uh, on reporting. He just simply said that he wasn't going to apply it as a general principle. And certainly when we finally found the case, uh, there was no suggestion that it had been uh, under restricted viewing for, you know, typically a limited period of 30 years or 50 years or until the decease of Ewan. There was no suggestion of that. We were just told that it had been accidentally misfiled and that's why no one could find it. I'm glad you, you, you actually said that there because I, I, in my mind I was hoping that there was some legal loophole that prevented it because when I was reading about you and he seemed like a, a, a very nice man, you know, a pillar of the community, doctor, uh, who liked to be, you know, serving of his community, make sure everybody was okay, liked to, to open up his 
as a state to, to the people who go hunting and stuff like that. And, and I, I got the, the sense that if he could have done more, he would have. I think he was desperate, you know. Although he had this wonderfully privileged upbringing and got astonishing treatment uh, at the start of his life, so he didn't go through the wrong puberty, uh, which was extraordinary, that came at a price. And the price was because the family were distinguished, not grand, but not dukes or marquises, just a baron in the baronetcy, uh, but nevertheless very distinguished. It meant that they were very keen on public protocol. And so for public occasions, even when Ewell was a young man, you know, with facial hair and chest hair and so on, he'd have to force himself into a dress for social occasions. He even had to be presented to the Queen as a debutante. Now we know now that if you did that to someone, that would have enduring psychological damage. His father was, was the traditionalist, wasn't he? You know, he was, yeah, um, very much so. You know, make, you know, it was kind of absolute in his decisions about whether, uh, what type of dress he would, he would wear in, in formal occasions, regardless of his age and his gender, yeah, sex. Exactly. And you're right, you know, to, to have to, to wear a dress at a time when you were, in, in your mind, you were a male, psychologically traumatising. Yeah. But Ewan had been brought up really to appease. And yeah. so when John challenged him, that was what he went to. You know, we've all got a choice of reactions. What do we do? Is it fight, flight, or freeze and appease? And for Ewan, it was freeze and appease. And he uh, tried to buy John off, his cousin off, from challenging the baronetcy by giving him the 20,000-acre estate of Craigavar and Fintry. Can I go back a little bit? Uh, Zoe, could you, could you could you explain for the listener what who John is, you know, without giving too much away of the book, and what transpired with John? Uh, when I was when I was reading the book, uh, someone mentioned to me, uh, Doctor John Roberts uh, mentioned to me, and what about John? And I said, well, I've not got that far yet. But when <laughs> when I when I did come to the part of the book that I encountered John, I knew exactly what John was. Dr. John Roberts was saying. He's a what, wasn't he? Well, he was. You know, I mean, you're always so reluctant as a historian to paint someone as absolutely black, but I haven't been able to find anyone that could give me any lightness in uh, Cousin John's character. So when uh, Ewan's uh, older brother died, John, Cousin John turns up to the funeral. None of the family have ever seen him before, but he turns up to the funeral and immediately after the funeral, he tells Ewan, I'm going to put him for the baronetcy, effectively because you are not a real man. And uh, Ewan meets him at the local pub in Harford and uh, talks to him. Ewan has his solicitor there and Ewan signs over the Craigavar and Fintry estates uh, to John, 20,000 acres of prime Scots estate, all the family jewels, all the family portraits, and so on, on the grounds that John won't then go for the baronetcy. And having got that, John goes for the baronetcy. What's more, he contacts Ewan's estranged older sister, Margaret, and Margaret's in financial difficulties, and John says, 
look, I'll help you out financially if you'll write me a letter. I want you to write me a letter saying that you know for sure Ewan is definitely female. And Margaret does so. No. Margaret. <laughs> now, later on in the book, you refer to TERFs. For the listener, TERFs means trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Yes, that's right. It's a sociological term that's been around since, what, 2008. Now, would you, given the relationship with Ewan, there seemed to be a lot of angst there from Margaret. Do you think if she was alive today, she would be a TERF? <laughs> I can't think that Margaret would be radical in any way, certainly not a feminist. What she was, was scary. Right. Everyone that speaks of Margaret says she was scary, um, had a very, very strong temper. Right. Uh, I mean, clearly she was also, you know, we have to say, a courageous woman who was decorated in the war for uh, services to uh, the United States. And she was very devoted to the idea of the, um, uh, the Forbes Semple um, uh, lineage and history. She bought uh, Drimina Castle and started to uh, uh, restore it, which was one of the reasons for her financial difficulties. Uh, but uh, everyone that I've spoken to uh, says they were terrified of um, Aunt Margaret and her temper. And certainly the National Trust people, you know, uh, when Craig of our castle went into the National Trust, if they went over to Dramina, they weren't allowed to go on their own. They only ever went with the, um, uh, the Scots head of the National Trust. <laughs> because Margaret was fearsome, you know? You know, I got the impression from the book that she was an impetuous person who was led by her emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that may have led to her being, you know, siding with John, you know, and for money against her younger brother. Because uh, Margaret was gay, wasn't she? She, she was a lesbian. You know, one of the things that, that you highlighted in your book that was that, you know, female relations, female with, uh, and, and both two females, uh, they could live life in relation to trans people relatively simply. Uh, this is my friend. We can live here. Uh, everything's fine. But if you're trans or uh, gay, as a man, then you run the risk of being excluded from society as having a mental illness or imprisoned if you uh, actually went through with a marriage. Or Is that a male-dominated thought process in our society? That if it's okay for females, but it's not okay for males. Well, it certainly started out that way. You know, uh, in the 1880s, when gay men were criminalised in the UK, uh, there was a move to also criminalise uh, lesbians. Uh, but in fact, in the debate in the House of Lords, uh, that move was defeated on the grounds that um, it would be drawing lesbianism to the attention of women who, to uh, uh, quote the Chancellor, had never dreamed, never thought of such a thing. And so they thought it would, uh, it would be a retrograde move. They also had the idea then, uh, and this persisted for a long time, and, and you know, you'll see it an awful lot in Hollywood films, that uh, they had the idea that women had no sexual agency themselves. A woman knew nothing about sex until she was awakened, was the word, awakened by a man. Um, and so therefore it was fine for two women to be living together. Apart from anything else, it was impossible for the 
patriarchal heterosexist mind to even think what women were, what do lesbians do in bed? You know, it's the, one of the oldest um, discriminatory questions that, uh, uh, that we have. But of course, even then, they would never be referred to as partners. It was always, this is Margaret and her friend, Joe. You know, I mean, if they were in other lesbian circles or gay circles, then friend might be said with a certain emphasis or look that indicated the true nature of the relationship. And the same was true for gay men. You could be, it was fine if you were gay, provided you were gay in private. Um, when we had the partial decriminalization of male homosexuality in 1967, that was put into law. It was okay to be gay in private, but there must be no public displays of affection. So this is, long-standing and, and very recent. When I look at TV programmes, uh, there seems to be a lot of um, television programme period pieces coming out of Britain at the moment. And I think of things like Downton Abbey, Grantchester, um, you know, these types of programmes. And the, 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 there is an attempt to deal with these subjects. You know, one, one man in um, Downton Abbey visiting a, an illegal nightclub that is exclusively male gay uh, and being arrested and one of his friends who is in the, the landed gentry uh, realm manages to get him off in terms of being arrested. And the other show, Grantchester, there is a, a, a minister who is gay and he's been through a court case and is uh, looking like he's going to lose everything as in his words. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing to be portraying that in shows at the moment. What, what, what do you think of that? I suppose there's a sense in which any visibility is better than complete invisibility. But what they tend to do is to focus on um, sexuality uh, and scandal. What they tend not to do is to think about the broader social injustices and the misery, just the daily, everyday misery and fear of having to live your life like that. So it's very much, those storylines tend to be very much um, gay people presented for the entertainment of straight, pe straight people. They tend, yeah, and we tend not to see, if we were to say, who are the famous gay actors, who are the famous lesbian actors, who are the famous trans actors, well, and directors, then, no, we, we don't quite know, do we? So we see an awful lot of um, uh, transface, it's called after blackface, uh, uh, cis people playing trans roles, and we could add to that, I guess, gay face as well, you know. I, mean, I think um, <clears throat> HIV AIDS kind of brought this into prominence in terms of in the, the 80s that HIV and AIDS was a, a gay scourge on society and you know that reinforced everything you're saying didn't it yes it did very much so as though the only people i can remember having a conversation not that long ago with someone who was saying uh, that you know of course hiv um, uh, was a gay disease and uh, it was sent by god because god hates gay people uh, and i said well why in that case is it so prevalent in countries like Africa where homosexuality is illegal? 
clearly it's a sexually transmitted disease. Um, it's a bit like saying COVID is a gay disease or COVID is a cis disease. You know, it's nonsense, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean it's, it's basically, you know, it's, it's complete ignorance and, and disinformation, yeah. um, you know, promoted by um, the press uh, and, you know, the powers that be. But back to the book, you mentioned in the, you know, when we were talking about the court cases, uh, the, how horrendous these court cases were. I mean, I, I'm speaking about you and, and April in particular. So yeah. these two parts, I was going to ask if you would wanted to mention these two, two issues. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, both of them um, horribly prurient, you know, um, not considering any kind. I mean, there was absolutely no need to do anything more than simply take scientific evidence. And the big concern, I suppose, is that uh, in Ewan's case, the scientific evidence um, that was used in Ewan's favour, the same scientific evidence given by the same uh, senior medical staff was refused. So for Ewan, the scientific argument won. For April, it was refused. And the judge in April's case went to the most extreme lengths to uh, disauthenticate her uh, so that he ordered um, a medical examination which included uh, a report on her vagina. Mm -hmm. The first report that came back said, well, you know, it's a vagina, it's lubricus and neovagina, it's um, uh, lubricated rather differently. Um, this is common with neovaginas, they're not an unusual feature. Many women are born with a foreshortened vagina and have to have vaginoplasty. So that's that. Uh, the judge didn't like that at all. So he made them write another report to disauthenticate April's vagina. Um, basically saying is, please write this report to suit my narrative. Yes, to suit my narrative. And in court he said this astonishing thing that um, having sex with April was um, really no different to um, uh, anal sex because her vagina was only a matter of centimetres from her anus. Now where do you think everyone else's vagina is? I still wonder. Did he bring into, into question the, the length of the perineum uh, in a way that, uh, you know, every, every female or every male uh, has a predetermined size of perineum? I know, I know. Just absolutely absorb. I mean, just what Lord Ormrod was thinking, I don't know. But I do often wonder where, Lord, where Lady Ormrod told him her vagina was. That he was so confused about. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, come back to you, court case. You know, to put his wife on the stand and humiliate her. Yeah, I think you know that was. Um, I mean, we have no evidence uh, uh, for this, but uh, it felt to me as though that was deliberately to punish uh, Ewan. Right. I mean, the judge knew that um, uh, Ewan was producing this audacious argument and he knew it couldn't be refuted, but he didn't believe it. And I think that he uh, uh, deliberately humiliated Patty, asking her specifically about, you know, did she have an orgasm and how frequently and did she know what it was and 
the detailed anatomical um, uh, processes of um, uh, sexual liaison uh, with her husband. I mean, really quite intrusive, prurient, cruel. I mean, we can only say cruel, vindictive, brutal. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to uh, give the book away. But uh, I just found it remarkable that these two, the, the amount of detail that was asked for in the court cases was, was yeah. completely unnecessary. But yes, from a layman in that, I don't know if uh, there's a, a counter-argument to that. No, well, all, judges, like everyone else, have to obey the laws of public decency. And it certainly wouldn't have been condoned today. It shouldn't have been condoned then. Now, when... Ewan produced a sample of his testicle, or rather a testicle. Was he in fact committing a kamikaze act on his medical career? Because I think he knew that once that case was over, he couldn't go further as a medical practitioner because he'd broken his oath, hadn't he? He had. He could have. I mean, he got away with it. Um, there was certainly no one um, uh, willing to say uh, formally, you know, that uh, what he said in court wasn't true. But he knew what he'd done. And he knew from the start. He knew when he was going to make that argument. At that point, he knew he was sacrificing his medical career. He knew that. But it's that, or be declared, you know, female, categorised as a floridly psychotic lesbian, having um, contracted a perjured marriage to Patty, putting him and Patty in prison for two years, mm-hmm. destroying his social life, and in any event, striking him off the medical register. Going back to that question, I asked you, could Ewan have done more? That point that you ju- we just talked about, about the, 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 you know, the, the sample of the testicle, he did a lot, didn't he, to... to uh, to save Patty, to, he gave away his career in order to make yeah. a point and to, 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 to... He gave away his career, he gave away yeah. the estate, um, he gave away his financial security. Uh, the whole thing took three years to decide. He gave away his mental health. And I'm sure the, the untold uh, effect it may have had or would have had on his health overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, what we know about uh, people in those circumstances, if we look at, you know, uh, trans people who have taken cases uh, and lost, for that matter, then we know that it is debilitating and exhausting and to some degree traumatising. And so it's usual for people then to retire, really. You know, you don't, you tend not to come back from that sort of um, being pilloried in court. And even though he won, I mean, a three-year period of indecision from when his brother died in uh, December 1965 to finally getting the Home Secretary's decision that he could have the baronetcy in December 1968. It must have been absolute torture. I think it's astonishing that he lived, that he just stayed alive. Because what we know is that, you know, the rate of, um, uh, of suicide, death by suicide amongst trans people 
is far higher than that of the general population simply because of the sort of stresses, strains and, well, bigotry. Uh, you, you highlighted that in the book, Zoe, um, when you mentioned uh, the doctor's name escapes me, but I think it was a doctor from uh, John Hopkins who John Money. accidentally cut the penis off of a, a, a baby. Yes, he didn't, he didn't do the penectomizing, but John Money, yes, this is the infamous uh, so-called John Joan case, where um, uh, Money uh, used um, a baby boy, always known as uh, John. Uh, so the baby boy was one of um, boy twins. He was uh, uh, accidentally penectomized by the pediatrician at birth. Um, I'm stop you there. How do you accidentally do that? Uh, well, the child had a little flap of skin uh, between the thigh and the penis, and um, uh, you know, the paediatrician was clumsy in removing that little um, that securing flap. He oblated the penis, unfortunately. Was uh, that a case of let's use this as an experiment? It was for John Money, yes. Yes, right, okay. Yeah. When the parents, uh, when uh, the boy's real name was David Reimer, and when David Reimer's parents found their way to John Money, uh, John Money more or less leapt on it as a golden opportunity to demonstrate uh, that there was, in his belief, there was a thing called a gender gate swinging to and fro somewhere in uh, children's minds, and the proper parenting would get them through the gender gate and make sure not only that they were cisgendered, but also that they were heterosexual. For John Money and his acolytes, um, being gay or trans meant that you'd had insufficient parenting, probably the fault of the mother, and um, you'd not got through the gender gate on the right side. And they believed that you could be put through the gender gate. And he, um, uh, he carried out a longitudinal uh, experiment on John. He told... Um, uh, uh, the parents, that the child would be um, uh, reassigned as female. There would be a series of operations. They must never know, uh, uh, yes, they must never know, um, let the little boy know that he uh, uh, had been reassigned as female. And he, John Money, would visit regularly to assess progress. And whenever Money uh, wrote his reports, it was always glowingly about mm -hmm. how the child perfectly adapted to being female. David Reimer's story was different. He said, every now and again, this creepy old guy had come round and, you know, I'd be in terrible trouble if I didn't do all the things I was supposed to do then. And the poor guy, when he was 18, his parents told him what had happened. He'd never, ever felt that he was female. He'd always believed that he was male and he immediately um, reassigned to male. The stress of the whole thing uh, was so awful that he uh, died by suicide. It was easier to die than it was to live after going through that. And Ewan, I think, must have felt something of that. He must have wondered whether it would be easier to die. Uh, and you know, Zoe, other than your book, I don't know if there'll be anywhere that that story would have been told because I'm sure in medical books it would have shown that it was a success. 
this experiment was a success. Yes, the um, uh, Rhymer thing, how that came out was fascinating. So that right from the start, when John Money was uh, flourishing uh, about his success in the assignment, which sort of played into a narrative that sex was constructed rather than being uh, intrinsic, you know? Um, but there was a biologist down at the University of Hawaii, um, Professor Milton Diamond, Mickey to his friends, and Mickey said that he just didn't believe right from the start that this could be so. And so he actually spent his own money advertising to try to find out where this kid was and eventually got in touch with David Reimer and discovered the whole story and published it in 1997 and caused an absolute huge furore in the medical press and medical circles. Because by then, John Money's notion that there was a gender gate, people who were trans were inadequately parented, uh, they could be cured by psychotherapy, or if they were so far gone they couldn't be cured, then they could at least be given a calming life uh, with um, uh, surgical reconstruction. But you had to be very careful about which patients you did this for, um, and so on that had become orthodoxy in medicine. That's what everyone believed. And so when Milton Diamond said, look, this whole thing is built on sand, yeah, there was a, a terrible rap. And you'll still find, you'll still find people out there who stick to um, uh, Money's uh, pseudo-medicine and say, yeah, no. I find, I find yeah. that astonishing. It's also recent, Andy. That's the thing that's, I mean, writing the whole thing, the whole book was just, shocked me every now and then I just have to stop because I can't go on reading this you know this is how can this be true um but of course it is all true and I think that truth is also problematic I mean I accept of course these are terribly uncomfortable truths horribly uncomfortable and I think they're especially problematic to people who take a strong ideological position who have a fixed ideological belief about the inviolability of male and female and that God created people either male or female there's nothing in between and what you are is what you are and anything else is you know diseased or degenerate or just plain wrong and I understand how upsetting that is to that mindset but still at the end of the day you know the purpose of a university is in the end to actually reveal fact and information and to present uh, evidence-based research. And that I'm afraid is, well, what I did. This is how it was. I commend you for that. What I was going to say is, as an addendum, isn't it the right for everybody to be happy? You would think so. And yet for some people, they, they feel themselves the arbiters of who should and shouldn't be allowed to be happy. You know, you would think that equality was something that we had simply by being born. And yet for others, they feel that they're the arbiters of who should have equality, who should have liberty, who should have freedom. You touched at the very end of your book on the here and now. Mm -hmm. um, and what I wanted to ask is, what impact, good or bad, 
do you think social media has had on transphobia, transgender issues? Yes. I mean, certainly when the internet started, it was quite astonishing to be able to communicate so rapidly across the world with people. Uh, you know, before then, if you were working in um, uh, legal stuff and you wanted to, say, make a comparison between um, what was done in the UK, what the laws were in the UK with the rest of the world, then you were writing letters and you were scratching hard to try to find out even who to write them to, who would have the information. And suddenly being able to whiz emails from one country to another and now just being able to turn on the computer and talk face to face, that made a big, big impact on, um, uh, on transactivism. And it's also been fabulous because, you know, the internet supports so many trans community groups that are hugely supportive. Uh, so that now, instead of trans people being completely isolated, um, they can log on, talk to other people, parents can get advice, children can see trans affirmative stuff and so on. And that's all the upside. But on the downside, uh, social media is also a hugely powerful lobbying tool. And what we've had in the UK has been um, a, a massive influx of um, uh, US funded anti-trans groups uh, funded by um, American uh, fundamentalist alt-right uh, groups who are trying to use trans rights as a wedge issue for women's reproductive rights. And obviously you've now got Joe Biden over there um, and so there's not a lot of point in trying that on him. Um, but it, uh, uh, we've got an alt-right government, uh, or at least an alt-right administration over here. Um, and that is having a lot of purchase. So increasingly trans people's voices are being silenced on social media. Um, there's a lot of uh, trolling of trans people. There's a practice that's called pylon, so that if um, uh, a trans person, say a writer like uh, Sean Fay, whose book, The Transgender Issue, uh, is uh, now uh, a bestseller over here, certainly. Uh, if uh, uh, Sean Fay uh, tweets, then she'll get uh, a pylon of hundreds of um, negative uh, responses. So much so that, in fact, she's just left Twitter. So it, it, it is also, you know, a potential forum for um, uh, bullying and abuse. So it's mixed, some good. Good, so mixed, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got two questions left that I want to ask. The first one is, 25 years from now, where do well, you think we will be in terms of progress? Well, well I'll tell you where I'd hope we'd be. Uh, certainly. I was talking to um, a, a reviewer from the trade press and I said to her, how would you feel if one of your children came out as uh, gay or lesbian? And she looked puzzled and said, well, that would be fine. I said, because 25 years ago, you would have been extremely worried. So I'm hoping that in 25 years time, if a child comes out as trans, people say, oh, that's fine. Because it doesn't take much. Once you've got over the ideological problem, it doesn't take much to make reasonable adjustments to the way society works. 
over in the US, I think you're all, you've already had your first non-gender specific passport. It doesn't take much to say, given that we know that sex, biological sex is a spectrum in which everyone starts out as female, many people proceed to male, many people stay as female, and an awful lot of people end up in the middle. You know, it wouldn't take much to say, why do we just have male and female on passports and birth certificates and so on? Why don't we have at least, at the very least, a third section? And why don't we just make reasonable adjustments everywhere in society to do that? It's not really a big ask at all. Uh, so I'd hope that in 25 years, we have trans equality. That's what I'd be looking for, full equality. So that being trans is just like having, I don't know, blue eyes or brown hair, or it's just, you are, and there, that's it. And do you think we're heading that way? You're heading that way in the US. We're not heading that way in the UK. I'm not sure um, uh, what the requirements are uh, for me to naturalize as a US citizen, but at the moment, uh, you know, it does feel like a much more comfortable country for any LGBT person to be in than the UK. It's, I think it's a blip, honestly, uh, Andy. Certainly, Theresa May's uh, Conservative government had an excellent LGBT action plan and was steaming well ahead with it. It was only when she was displaced as Prime Minister uh, by the current Prime Minister that um, uh, that ended and ended very sharply and is now starting to be accompanied by support for conversion practices and uh, so on. Um, so I'm hoping that this is just a temporary dark period for the UK. Now before I let you go, I have one more question and that basically is, is there anything that I haven't asked that you would like for me to have asked and that you would like to say before we head off the only, no, you have asked everything really, Andy. The only thing that I would say is what I'd like people to take away is very simply that for decades, trans people self-identified, had affirmative medical care, corrected their birth certificates and lived in equality. It wasn't a problem then. It shouldn't be a problem now. And on that note... I will finish this interview by saying, please buy this fantastic book. I've read it cover to cover. I was absolutely encapsulated by it. It was a great read. It was a shocking read. Uh, it was a very insightful read. And I'm a better person for it, having read it. And I would like to thank you, Zoe, for, for writing it and taking all of the time to research and give it to us. I really do thank you for that. The hidden case of Ewan Forbes and the unwritten history of the trans experience. Where will it be available in the US? Available from the 2nd of November in the US and you can already pre-order a copy on all bookshops websites. That's all we have time for in this episode of Honestly from HVCS. But before I go, I would like to thank Zoe Playden for discussing her new book, The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes and the Unwritten History of the Trans Experience. 
Tune in next time to Honestly from HVCS in order to meet more people doing what they can to improve your quality of life and encourage a healthy Hudson Valley. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Learn more about our free services at www.hudsonvalley.org or find us on social media. HVCS is a division of Cornerstone Family Healthcare. In the meantime, goodbye.